Um, so last week, we were looking at the first part of Leviticus 22, and we were um, talking about how in Leviticus 22, it's talking about the offerer, meaning the priest, as well as the offering. And so last week, we looked at the offerer, and we, we kind of finalized that section, looking at these verses from Hebrews 13, uh, beginning in chapter or chapter 13, beginning in verse 9. To not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar, and this is the verse we talked about at the end there. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. And we talked about the fact that in the new covenant, there's a different priesthood. It's the priesthood of a believer's. And no longer do the priests give sacrifices, and then they take their food portion from the sacrifice. Instead, now, as priesthood of believers, we eat from a different altar of a different sacrifice, meaning we feast on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he continues, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the... into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, so the conclusion, that's like the change of the priesthood. You know, we go outside. Instead of going into the Holy of Holies, we go outside because that's where Jesus suffered. We partake of this new altar, the grace of Christ. And then this is the conclusion. Through him... Then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So what we want to focus on today, if last week was about the, uh, the changing of the offerer, then this week is about the changing of the offering. Right? And so verse 10 last week, we see that the, new, the priests, they eat from a different altar, and then we see now they offer a different sacrifice. And so that's really what we want to unpack today, is what did this, this section of Leviticus 22, 17 to 33, teach about the sacrifice, and then how does that translate into the new covenant, and now what are the sacrifices today, right? Because as you guys may have noticed, we no longer, um, you know, kill bulls and that kind of stuff. And so what are the new covenant or the new testament post Jesus sacrifices? And you know maybe some of these are questions you guys have asked before. It's like, well, how come we don't, you know, sacrifice animals any anymore that kind of stuff. So we're going to be in Leviticus 22:17 and following. All right, let me read these first couple of verses. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, "Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of the house of Israel or of the sojourners in Israel presents a burnt offering as his offering for any of their vows or free will offerings that they offer to the Lord, if it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish of the bulls or the sheep or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish for it will not be acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering from the herd or from the flock to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals to be animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. You may present a bull or a lamb that has a part too long 
or too short for a free will offering, but for a vow offering, it cannot be accepted. Any animal that, animal that has its testicles bruised or crushed or torn or cut, you shall not offer to the Lord. You shall not do it within your land. Neither shall you offer as the bread of your God any such animals gotten from a foreigner. Since there is a blemish in them because of their mutilation, they will not be accepted by you. Okay, so what's this whole paragraph about? Um, besides the fact that you can't offer your puppy, okay? Um, you see that it says the word offering one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times. We have the word offering in, this, in these eight verses. And so obviously the key theme going on here is offering. If you're in the hermeneutics class, then we look for those repeated words. And so in the spirit of the hermeneutics class that we've been doing on Wednesday nights, I'm going to explain these paragraphs through those three lenses of what does it say, what did it mean to the original audience, and then what does it mean for us living in the New Covenant. And so first, what does it say? If we're going to summarize this, this whole section, these eight verses, the whole point of these eight verses is that if an animal is to be accepted by the Lord, it must be a male without blemish from the herd or the flock. I mean, that's a very simple way to summarize this section. Now, there's some differences depending on the type of offering. We're not going to unpack those offerings because we spend five weeks doing that at the beginning of the series. And so if you weren't here for the beginning of the Leviticus series, I know you're super bummed. You can go back, you can listen to those sermons and hear all about, you know, well, what's the difference between the whole burnt offering and the grain offering and the peace offering and the reconciliation offering and those sorts of things. You can go and listen to those. We're not going to unpack them now. But basically, the animal has to be male without blemish from the herd or from the flock. Now, regarding male, I know these are confusing times, guys. But hopefully you still know what that means when I say it had to be a male animal, okay? And so I don't want to spend too much time there. The important thing here is without blemish, without blemish. Without blemish, as you saw in this paragraph, meant no disabilities, no mutilations, no discharge, no sickness, no neutered animals, no secondhand goats, okay? Passed out from your foreigner, Frank, he's passing through, he gives you his goat, no bueno. You can't give Frank's goat, okay? And so that's what this paragraph says. Let's not overcomplicate it. What it says is the animals need to be male without blemish. Well, so what does that mean for the Israelites? Well, if you're an Israelite and this is the type of animal that you have to give, what that means is that sacrifice was costly and very inconvenient. Okay? And so if you're going to make a note in your Leviticus journal, I would make that note. Sacrifice was costly and inconvenient. How do I know that's true? Well, since the sacrifice was unblemished, it couldn't be a convenient excuse to get rid of your animal. Okay? I'll give you some very real-world situations, which if you were a good Jewish boy or girl, and you're living during this time, and then your, your favorite cow, Dolly, has a, a little baby, and you say, oh, this bull is blind. Let's give it to God, right? You can't do that. Oh, no, this goat has six legs. Well, that's two extra legs for God's food offering. No. Or like I said, Frank gave us his old goat. I do feel thankful. I think I'll offer it to the Lord. All of those are things you can't do. You can't use the fact that you don't want this goat or that this goat is old or that this goat is lame. And instead of just putting it down, you say, you know what? I'm going to bring it to the, to the temple. I'm going to give it to God. 
and we'll just kind of, you know, that way it's like a two for one. You know what I mean? God's happy, I'm happy, and I don't have to get rid of my best goat. Are you guys following me? Well, you can't do that, so don't do it, okay? And so sacrifice was costly. And so since the sacrifice was unblemished, you couldn't just be a convenient excuse to get rid of an animal you didn't really want anyway. Now, since it was um, the male, it meant that you were effectively ending this line, all right? That's a significant thing. Because as you know, one bull can impregnate lots of cows. And so to lose this bull is a massive economic loss to your family. You're essentially saying, I am going to give from this, realizing that it's not just going to cost me this bull, it's going to cost me all of this bull's progeny. This bull will not have children, this bull will not impregnate the rest of my cows, or whatever animal from the herd or the flock that it happens to be. And so this is not only an inconvenient or not only an inconvenient sacrifice, this is also a costly sacrifice that is costly today and costly in the future. And the third thing is this, sacrificing an unblemished male meant that you were giving God your best stock and denying yourself security. Right? Because by having this animal, you essentially have a pledge. It's almost like having money in the bank that you know you have this animal. If times become difficult, you know that you can sell this animal. You know you can put this animal up as collateral. You know that this animal can have children. But by giving this to the Lord, you're giving the unblemished male, you're essentially giving God the best part of your herd. Because you might have an animal that's a worker but maybe it's got one bad eye, well, that animal cannot be given to the Lord. That animal can still work for you, but by giving the best of your, of your flock, you're essentially saying this animal is not going to breed, and this is the animal you would want to breed. This is the unblemished, strong male bull that you would want to be the one that's breeding, that's making more unblemished strong babies, right? Because maybe that other bull that's a worker, maybe that's a birth defect and it's, and it's going to be genetic and it's going to continue into further lines. And so the point is this, sacrifice for the Israelites is super costly and it's super, con- super inconvenient. And as we hopefully have seen by this point in time, it's extremely common and bloody, right? And so this is a, a perpetual thing that you're constantly having to give from your own flock, from your own security. Okay, let's look at the next section, beginning in verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When an ox or sheep or goat is born, it shall remain seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day on it shall be accepted as a food offering to the Lord. That's the whole burnt offering. But you shall not kill an ox or a sheep or, and her young in one day. And when you sacrifice a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, you shall sacrifice it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten on the same day. You shall leave none of it until morning. I am the Lord. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. And you shall not profane my holy name that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So you see, again, for hermeneutic students, you see, I am the Lord, repeated multiple times. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. That means I'm the one who sets you apart, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. And so if the last paragraph was primarily focusing on the offering, 
this paragraph is primarily focusing on what truth? I am the Lord. And so this is focusing on the one who's receiving the offering and how he's worshipped. So what do these verses say? Well, in verse 27 and 28, that's where it says you can't, like, kill a baby and its mom on the same day um, and, and those sorts of things. Scholars debate that. There's no real clear reason what's the truth behind that, but I'll give you the three main areas that they say. One is they say there's some evidence that infertility cults in Canaan, which is this land, they would sacrifice generations of animals at once to bless their own fertility. You know, so it's like, I'm going to kill three generations of sheep because then I will have three generations of little billies running around. You know, that kind of idea. All right. Um, this is essentially what the, in, in theological terms, we call this a polemic. Okay, a polemic is kind of like satire. It's a little different, but the idea is that this is God directly kind of nudging or giving an elbow to the pagan traditions of the day. All right. And by the way, polemic is throughout the scriptures. So don't let that bother you. I'll give you a perfect example. Psalm 29, um, which is a very popular psalm ascribed to the Lord, glory ascribed and tells you give all these things to God, give all these things to God. Um, it's a direct quote from the Baal Ugaritic cycle written about 500 years before Psalm 29. And so scholars suggest that this is a polemical use of a quote from this Baal cycle, essentially saying, you think your God is the king of the storm? You think your God is the king of the ocean? You think your God is king of the world? No, he's not. Yahweh is. And so that's uh, polemics are throughout the scripture. So one is that this is essentially saying don't sacrifice like the pagan sacrifice in their fertility cycles. Uh, other people think that this seven-day law is to reflect the sanctity of the seven-day cycle that's common within the nation of Israel. Yet others maintain that these laws simply are underscoring the Hebrew high regard for life. Whatever the actual cause is, the essence is the same. Since God, and we see that in, the, in, in those, I am the Lord who sanctifies you, that since God brought the people out of Egypt, since he purchased them, he redeemed them, since he's different from any other kind of God, and since he's making them into a different kind of nation, his point is, you need to follow my lead. I am the Lord. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord who's receiving your sacrifice. And so you worship me the way that I say that I should be worshiped. That's what this says. Now, what does that mean for this original audience? I kind of already hinted at it. Since God is entirely different from any other God, they had to worship God as he determined, not as they decided. And so we unpacked this back in, what was it, Leviticus chapter 10 with Nadab and Abihu um, when they offered strange fire and the fire consumes them. The idea is don't look to the world around you to determine how to worship Yahweh. You look to him and he will tell you. Now that might seem like a no-brainer, guys, but it's not a no-brainer because God parted the Red Sea and then he swallowed up the Egyptian armies with that Red Sea. Then they go to Mount Sinai where, where they're afraid to go near the mountain because it's surrounded in smoke and fire and lightning. And then Moses goes up to get the Ten Commandments, but he, he's gone a little while. And then while, they're, while he's gone, the Israelites are back at the base of the mountain and they're bored. And they're just kind of looking at each other. 
And they're like, you guys want to make some golden calves? And they're like, yeah, let's do it. And so they like hold my beer and they make some golden calves, right? And then they look at the golden calves, which they just made. And they go, and Aaron goes, behold, these are your gods who saved you from the land of Egypt. And everybody's like, cheer. Right now, they were all there when he crossed the Red Sea. But that's what happens when you worship like the pagans do, okay? And so God is saying you can't worship me the way the pagans worship their gods. And so this isn't a no-brainer for them in their existing cultural context because pagan worship is all they've ever known, right? Whereas you guys are standing on the shoulders of thousands of years of Judeo-Christian heritage, okay? But paganism was the norm. All right, so these are those two paragraphs. You know, the fact that God says that sacrifice is by my standards, sacrifice is for me, it's going to be costly, it's going to be inconvenient, you worship me the way that I'd say I had to be worshipped because I am different, you are different, I'm making you into a different type of people. And so those are those first two movements of what does it say and what did it mean for the Israelites. But the question is this, what does it mean for me? What does it mean for us? Because like I said, we don't offer animal sacrifices anymore. So should we start, right? Or is that done? What are the sacrifices that we offer today, living 2,000 years post-Christ? Well, a couple things back to back. We're going to kind of do this in reverse. One, since God is entirely different from any other God, we must worship God as he has decided not as we feel or as we feel, uh, as we have decided. So like I said, we spent a whole week on this exact topic. It was Leviticus 10. I think the title of the sermon was Worshiping God in Spirit and in Truth. But I want to highlight just one or two things, three or four things, five things. Uh, I just want to highlight a couple things from this section. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he says, nobody comes, in other words, nobody comes to worship the Father except through me. And so this is the, this is the God-appointed means by which we worship God the Father. God the Son is the way, the means by which we enter into worship with God the Father. And so the question is, well, how, Bill? Prove that to me. One and so um, hopefully these things make sense to you guys. One, let me just pause. You, as, you, as I read this, you know what you're going to realize? All of this goes back to Leviticus. Of all books in the Bible, it all goes back to Leviticus, which is mind-blowing because we think about a verse like John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And most of us would never say, oh, yeah, that's all rooted in Leviticus. Okay, but that's what we see. One, God has always made it clear that there was only one way into his presence. It was blocked by a curtain, and only the high priest was allowed entrance, and only once a year, and that process had no permanence. That's the high priest, the Day of Atonement, and that's all found in what book? That's right. Good job, Deacon. Two, God has always rejected man-made means of creating our own access 
to God, which we saw in Leviticus 10 when Nadab and Abihu go into the Holy of Holies and they offer up unauthorized incense and fire in their censer and God consumes them. Three, God has made it clear that only a very particular person from a very particular line can have access to him. The high priest from the line of Aaron, it's Leviticus. But Jesus alone can provide access to the Father because he is the way through the curtain, which he says in Hebrews, is my flesh. He is the God-made means of access as the pure and perfect once-and-done sacrifice, and he is the high priest from the order of Melchizedek chosen by God to execute this sacrifice and be heard. So Jesus can say, I am the way, the truth, and the life because he essentially fulfills the book of Leviticus. So the point is this. As people living in the New Covenant, you cannot borrow from paganism to build your own Levitical system. And you say, well, I don't do that. We do this all the time, all the time. People look at other religions, and then they borrow things, and they slap a Christian label on it. I'll give some examples that make you uncomfortable, okay? One, looking for signs in making decisions, paganism. There's a pastor, his name is Vadi Bauckham, maybe some of you are familiar with that name, and Vadi Bauckham is talking in this uh, message about the process by which we send missionaries, And he said, this is what you see in the book of Acts. The leaders of the church in prayer and fasting are pouring themselves out before the Lord and the Holy Spirit sets aside Paul and Barnabas for the work of the ministry. And the elders of the church agree with that call. They lay on hands, commissioning them. They pray and fast. They send them out. That's the biblical pattern that we see. And we see that throughout. The priest comes and anoints David. Elijah comes and anoints Elisha. It's the leadership of the people of God seeing something in someone and then commissioning them. That is the biblical norm. But that's not very sexy, right? And so Vadi Balkum gives this example. He says, this is the example we want to see. And like I said, this is his example, not mine. And he's got a much better voice and a better beard. I mean, a beard. I don't even have a beard, Brenton. And also, he pauses so long when he's talking that you think he died. Like, he'll be like, and then. And you're like, what? Anyway, so Vadi Balkum says this. He says, this is what we like to see. This is what gets people excited. He said people get excited when they say this. They say there was a hurricane in Solomon Islands, and they see it on the news, and they come home, and it's, they just feel very broken by it. And then all of a sudden the next day, um, Bill comes home from work and Gina is all excited because she says, I got a letter in the mail today where someone telling us that we should sell our house because the market is hot. And I just wonder, could this be the Lord telling us to sell our house and move to the Solomon Islands? And then Bill says, you're never going to believe this. But today, one of my best friends from work decided he was going to resign to move. And he's not moving to Solomon Islands, but he is moving to an island to start a business with his friend from college. And guess what his name is? Solomon. (laughs) Right? And the couple goes to bed that night wondering if this could be the Lord. 
And then that Sunday, there's a guest speaker at the church, and he's from a faraway country, and he talks about how we need more people to go, and this couple feels so stirred because of all of these signs and wonders that they're seeing with the letter in the mail and the coworker moving, and now this guest speaker, surely this must be from the Lord. And then as soon as they exit the building, the clouds come overhead, and it starts downpouring just like in a hurricane. And they look at each other and they say, we got to go. And Vadi Balkan points out, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's paganism. That's what the Vikings did when they would sacrifice and then look for a crow. That is paganism through and through. But as Christians, that's a lot easier to latch on to than trusting the Holy Spirit to guide your steps. And so we take a pagan practice and we make it our own. Second example to make you uncomfortable. People thinking they will be heard by their vain repetition of prayers. If you pray this 20 times, if I pray this 50 times, if I, maybe if I lay on my face and I pray for 36 hours, then God will listen to me. But what does Jesus say? Don't pray like the pagans. They think they'll be heard by their many words. They think they'll be heard by their longevity. Your father knows what you need before you even ask it. Don't be like them. Or as was common back in the day, not so much anymore, priests who would self-mutilate or put themselves in uncomfortable positions for penance right? Beat myself with chains. I'm going to sit on a pole, these sorts of things. Those are all pagan practices with a Christian label smacked onto them. And the point is this, as the people of God, how do you worship God? Through Jesus. We come to God through Jesus. We are rooted in him, established in him. And as we began by faith, we continue by faith. Colossians 2, 7 that's what we do. And so here's your action step. If you feel convicted about any of that kind of stuff, this is your action step. Ask the Lord to reveal to you if you've adopted pagan practices into your so-called worship. All right, the second thing that it means for us is this. Sacrifice continues to be costly and inconvenient. Sacrifice continues to be costly and inconvenient. You know, in the New Testament, there's three uses of sacrifice, just three. You can challenge me on it. Go, you can go Google search in your concordance. It's a sacrifice of praise, a sacrifice of giving, and a sacrifice of your whole life lived for God. Those are the three sacrifices that are given. The Old Testament system is fulfilled. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Hebrews 10, 26. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Now, 1 Peter 2, 5 says we offer spiritual sacrifices to our God. You can mute the phone. It's okay. All right. One, sacrifice of praise. Hebrews 13, 15. Through him then let us offer up a sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. In other words, we praise the Lord. Now, this is not a new concept. This is a biblical concept. He, um, Psalm 50, 23, the one who offers thanksgiving as sacrifice glorifies me. How is thanksgiving sacrifice when you don't feel like being thankful? Psalm 107:22 Let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving let them tell of his deeds and songs of joy the sacrifice is to verbally praise God's name what makes it costly because sometimes you don't feel like it 
Sometimes you don't feel like, like thanking God. Sometimes you don't feel like you have a reason to thank God. Some sometimes you simply need to get over yourself and choose to praise him, and that is the essence of giving a sacrifice of praise. I don't feel like it, but I'm going to do it. My heart doesn't feel it. I'm actually a giant curmudgeon, but I'm going to choose to be thankful, and I'm going to thank him until something breaks through. Well, what makes that costly is that you don't want to do it. Well, what makes it inconvenient is that you are commanded to praise him, not when things are going well, but when things are going poorly. And Paul goes as far as saying that you should thank God in all things and for all things. So you don't just say, I thank God in the midst of my whatever. You say, I thank God for this. Where do you need to stop complaining and start choosing a sacrifice of praise even though it's inconvenient and costly? That's the question. Where do you need to stop complaining and start choosing a sacrifice of praise? The second thing is this, a sacrifice of stewardship. Hebrews 13, 16, he says, Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Philippians 4.18, Paul writing from prison says, I have received full payment. He's talking about the money they sent him. And more, I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, which are a fragrant offering, a sacrifice pleasing to God. So in other words, the money that they sent with Epaphroditus to Paul Paul says is a sacrifice to God, not to Paul. It's a sacrifice to God that's acceptable and pleasing. Listen, God has entrusted each of us with resources. They vary in scope from person to person. Some of us have less. Some of us have more. But all of us have three things. We have time. We have talent. And we have treasure. And some Baptist who likes alliteration made that up. Time, talent, and treasure. Okay? Amen, Steve said. I was waiting for it. Now, I don't need to explain to you that giving your time, giving your treasure, and giving your talent is costly because we know that innately. That's why we don't want to give it, okay? My time is valuable to me. My money is valuable to me, and my talents are valuable to me. To give a sacrifice of stewardship is to ask the Lord, since you are his steward and everything you have came from him, God, what do you want me to give of my time, of my money, of my talent? How do you want me to give of these things for your kingdom expansion and the good of others? See, God commands us to give of our time to serve the local church, to serve our neighbor, neighbor, to love your family, to disciple other people. And so ask God this question, how do you want me to give of my time? even when it's inconvenient. Can I say something? It's inconvenient for all of us, guys. Nobody wants to give up their time. It's far easier for most people to write a check than to give up their time, especially in our culture. In our culture, my sister at her previous church she went to in Princeton, they could raise a missionary's annual package in a day. But if you ask someone to come and volunteer for an hour, they couldn't get anybody to show up, right? 
So the point is this. Sometimes giving your time is harder than anything else. But God also commands you to give of your money to fund the church, to fund the church's expansion into enemy territory. Nobody likes talking about it because it's unavoidable. There's a famous quote, the last part of a man to be converted is his wallet. And it is indeed true. Because where your treasure is, there your heart is. I'm going to say something really strong and obnoxious. Big surprise. Friends, if you aren't giving to the local church, I can tell you how little you value the local church. If you aren't giving to global missions, I can tell you how little you value it. And if I looked at your budget and I saw where you spent your money, I could indeed determine very quickly what you love. Isn't that a truth? You know it's a truth. Does it stink to hear? Yes, it stinks to hear because sacrifice is costly and inconvenient. And so we should be asking the Lord, God, how much money do you want me to give even when it's costly? And realize that's going to vary from person to person. The widow gave two cents, and that was all she had. She gave out of her lack, not out of her abundance. For other people, you can write a check for $10,000 and forget you did it, okay? And so everyone is different. When Emma was in first grade, she wrote like a little, I don't know, maybe essay is too generous of a term, right? But she wrote a little paper in her class, and it was about the church. And she wrote in it that um, she said, everybody has a talent. What's your talent? You're supposed to use your talent for God. That's what she wrote as a first grader. And see, and this is what it means to be part of the body with varying gifts. Some teach, some lead, some serve, some help, some give, some pray, some snuggle babies, some share the gospel, some encourage. Everybody has a talent. How are you using it to bless the local church? How are you using it to build the body of Christ? Because every single spiritual gift, with the exception of evangelism, is for the building up of the body of Christ, the local church. I have three acquaintances. I don't know how I meet these people. I have three acquaintances who used to smuggle drugs, and they now smuggle Bibles or live in areas where it's illegal to be a Christian. Okay? I know, I know people who make stupid amounts of money and give stupid amounts of money away. I know people who are natural teachers and who use it for the glory of God. I know people who would rather, as Jerry Seinfeld jokes, they'd rather be dead than giving the eulogy. They love working behind the scenes, in other words, and they do so willingly and with joy. Ask God, how do you want me to serve others? with the talents you've given me. And then the, the, the um, final thing here, guys, is a sacrifice of love for God and for man. Ephesians 5.2 says this, walk in love as Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us, a, fa a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Jesus walking in love was a sacrifice. Jesus literally sacrificed himself. He literally sacrificed himself for the sake of love. He loved God. He obeyed God unto death. That's what Philippians 2 tells us. He demonstrated that love to us while we were his enemies, John 3.16, by dying as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Romans 12.1 then says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, in other words, in light of the gospel, the first 11 chapters of Romans, present your bodies as a living sacrifice 
holy and acceptable to God, set apart and blameless. That is your spiritual worship. Or I think it says in the, in the NIV, that is your reasonable act of worship. It's your reasonable response that in light of what God has done to give him all of your being. Paul says that that's what we do. We offer ourselves as a sacrifice just like Jesus, pouring ourselves out for love even unto death if that's what it comes to. We sacrifice ourselves when we ask God, what do you want for me? What do you want for my life? Instead of looking inward for that answer, we sacrifice ourselves when we decide that we will seek first his kingdom and all of these other things will be added unto us. We sacrifice ourselves when we are willingly inconvenienced and suffer for the sake of the gospel. We sacrifice ourselves when we value someone hearing about Jesus or becoming like Jesus as more important than my own schedule. See, we are called to be like Jesus as seen in Philippians 2, 4 to 11, when Paul says, have the same mindset as Christ, who did not consider equality with God as something to be leveraged or taken advantage of or grasped, but instead he gave himself. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. See, this is our living sacrifice. This is the life that we are called to live. In essence, it's the life of surrender. And this isn't anything new either. Because as Jesus described in Mark 12, 33, to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And so just in case you thought I was forcing an issue, Jesus defines this sacrifice for us to love God and to love your neighbor and to realize that is more important than any animal sacrifice you could ever give. And so I want to leave you with three questions, and then we're done. Some of you need to hear all three. Some of you need to hear one. And so you ask the Holy Spirit, punch me in the head, Spirit. How will I praise God even though it is inconvenient and costly? What is going on in your life right now where you need to choose thanksgiving and praise in the midst of hardship, difficulty, sickness, poverty, whatever's going on? Two, Where will I give of my time, talent, and treasure even though it's costly? And three, who will I love even though it's inconvenient and costly? And so make those things tangible, right? Tangible. That means this week when the Holy Spirit prompts your heart as you see someone or hear about someone in need, you decide you're going to love them more than you love yourself. And you're going to give something that you would want because you know that for the sake of Christ, they need it. Let's pray. Father God, I ask that you would give us eyes to see your beauty, your splendor. Lord, all of this is born out of a place of love. You first loved us, and so you teach us to love others. God, we are being transformed from the inside out by your Holy Spirit. God, would you chip away and make us more like your son? We thank you for your good grace, which frees us from the law, so that we can live for you. In your name we pray, amen.